All right. Let's get into this text. <clears throat> Last time I preached, we covered Genesis chapter 31. So today we're going to try to cover chapter 32, which contains one of the most well-known and well-loved stories in the Old Testament, that is Jacob wrestling with God. But before we get to that, let's do a quick review of chapter 31, and then we'll get into 32. And uh, first, let's pray. Lord, we pray you'd show us great things from your word today. God, I ask you'd use me as a mouthpiece today to encourage and edify your people through the truth of your word. Let uh, my preaching and teaching be accurate to your word and to your spirit. Speak through your word today for the building up of your people and the advancement of your kingdom. May all that's said and done today bring honor and glory to you and to you alone. For you alone are worthy of it, Lord. It's in Jesus' holy name that we ask. And all God's people said, Amen. All right. Remember, chapter 31 starts out with Laban's sons being very envious and bitter toward Jacob because of God's blessing, by the way. Jacob's possessions were increasing quickly because of God's blessing. And uh, Laban's flocks were kind of stagnating. In point of fact, it wasn't that Jacob had taken anything that belonged to Laban. Rather, it was that his wealth was increasing faster than Laban's wealth was increasing, and that made Laban and his sons very envious. How strange. Isn't that how envy works? They still had a large herd as well. Remember, at the beginning of the whole thing, it was one of the things that Laban did that was so deceptive. He, he took out, remember he told Jacob, hey, your, your, um, your payment is going to be all the streaked and spotted and speckled livestock. And so before he even starts, he takes all those streaked and speckled livestock and he puts them into one herd and gives them off to his sons. And so Jacob is stuck starting at zero, and his sons actually have a head start. Or if you like dad jokes, they have a herd start. <laughs> That's all I got, man. I tell everybody that. All I've got is dad jokes and bad jokes. There's none of them that you're really going to laugh at, mostly just groaning, okay? But... That's what happens. So it's a little bit ironic that they're here talking about how terrible Jacob is. Dude, you had a herd to start with. I mean, you want the herd to increase? Do what he's doing. Just copy the guy. He's been doing it for years now, 14 years now. <clears throat> he's shown you how to do it. Just do it. My guess is maybe they were a little bit lazy, didn't like to work. It's interesting how often lazy and envious go together, strangely enough. So... Bit ironic. That's where we are, though. If they'd been industrious and wise, they could have been increasing their herds alongside with Jacob the entire time. And remember, by the way, James 3.16 tells us where envy and self-seeking are, confusion and every evil thing are there. I told you last time, envy is not just bad in and of itself, but it's also bad for its running mates, who you find it alongside with. And the envy creeping into their hearts, into the sons of Laban, will eventually ruin the relationship they have with Jacob. Envy in your heart will do the same. It will ruin relationships that you have. Beautiful, godly relationships can be destroyed by envy. Moving on. Jacob calls his wives out to the field for a meeting and then told them the plan. The plan is pack up, leave, head back home to Canaan. In the process of that meeting, Jacob reveals to us that he has served Laban with all of his might for more than 14 years now. And Laban has continually cheated him, changed his wages, act the trickster to him in an attempt to steal Jacob's honestly earned 
flocks slash possessions. And yet, even though Laban had continually tried to cheat Jacob, not for 14 years, I'm sorry, for 20 years, God protected Jacob all the while. God showed Jacob that he was sovereign. He was sovereign over all of these tricks, all of these schemes that Laban was trying to pull. Christian, that's you. He is still sovereign. I told you last time, he is El Roy, R-O-I, Roy, El Roy, the God who sees. He sees it all. He sees how people are treating you, whether good or bad. And he's promised to keep you as the apple of his eye. God is always with his people. He will never leave them nor forsake them. He sees everything anyone does to them. He sees how people talk about them. He sees the schemes that people try to pull on them. He's promised to keep his people, and that's what he's doing with Jacob here. God deals with people and his people. He sees how you are treated. He's promised to bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And I told you last time, that's the promise of Genesis 12:3. It's as true today as it was back then. And yes, Christian, it applies to you. And sadly, because this, this passage of Scripture has been so mistaught for so many years, there are a bunch of people in Christian churches today who think that promise and a bunch of others apply to national Israel but not to Christianity, and that's nonsense. And I'm going to get into that. I had actually had some questions about that last time, and so I decided, you know what, this time I'll delve into that a little more. I'll give you a few Scripture references, so if you want to get into this later and kind of dig this out, you've got a good starting place, okay? The truth is that promise was not made to all of Abraham's literal descendants. Think about it. It's, it's ridiculous to say that. Esau is one of his descendants. You think that promise applies to Esau? No. Why? Esau was a carnal man. Right? In fact, Galatians 6.16 tells us it's for the true Israel of God. And Paul delineates and says there's Israel and there's the true Israel of God. And what's the difference? Well, the true Israel of God are those who have faith in the Messiah. That is Jesus Christ. Obviously in the Old Testament they were looking forward to the Messiah who was to come. Now we are not. We're looking backward to the Messiah who has already come. But it's the same kind of faith. That's why Abraham is called the father of the faith. We, if you believe in Christ, if you believe in God's Messiah, then you are harboring the same faith, in essence, that Abraham had. He is your father in the faith. And those promises that God gave are still valid to you. How do I know that? Because all the promises of God find their yes and amen in who? Jesus Christ. They don't find their yes and amen in Abraham or Isaac or Jacob or the genetic lineage of your family tree, however wonderful that might be. Christ is the true Israel of God. Don't get mad at me for telling you what God's word says. That promise of oversight of Genesis 12:3 is made to those and only those who are found in the true Israel of God, which is to say Jesus Christ. So, I know some of you might have been raised in a church tradition that taught you this gobbledygook. 
That, and it's the same gobbledygook that I managed to absorb in my younger years, too, because I just heard it over and over in different places. I don't know that it was ever actually said from a pulpit, but it was, you know, <laughs> sometimes the worst thing in the church is Sunday school teacher. And that was how it was in our church, okay? So sometimes the best thing is. But here's how this teaching goes. It's not correct, but I want to throw it out there and show you how it's typically taught. This teaching goes that Christians are God's people, but so also are unbelieving Jews. You know, Christians are God's people by adoption, but unbelieving Jews, those are God's real people by birthright. So somehow, unbelieving Jewish people are are still God's chosen simply by virtue of who their parents are. That's nonsense. It's never been that way. It wasn't that way in the Old Testament. Don't tell your Presbyterian friends. No, the promise of blessing has always been dependent upon faith. Always. Just because you could trace your lineage to Abraham was never a guarantee that God was watching over you. That was never a guarantee that he was blessing you. It does get you closer to the gospel in a sense, so I guess that's a good thing, common grace. But no, you needed faith. There were a whole bunch of people who could trace their ancestry back to Abraham who died in the wilderness because of a lack of faith. Please don't try this nonsense of telling me, well, they were really God's chosen. Okay. No, there was always a faith component that had to be had. So, faith has always been a prerequisite for God's blessing. It's always been a prerequisite for salvation. You're not saved by virtue of who your parents were. Okay? It takes faith. Faith in the only Messiah, the only name under heaven by which we must be saved. That's what the book of Acts says. Jesus is the only name under heaven by which all men must be saved. There's no other way. I have literally heard, I said this last time, I've literally heard a guy who claims to be a Christian pastor. He's a, he's a, maybe he's a Christian pastor who just doesn't understand Christianity very well because he's teaching literal heresy. Who was teaching that, well, God actually has two ways of dealing with people. With Christians, he deals with faith in Jesus, and that's how they find salvation. But with the Jewish people, the Jewish unbelievers... He counts them as sons of the law and how they keep the law according to his commandments. That's what actually ends up being the grid work for their salvation. That is literal heresy. Keeping the law has never saved anybody. Because there's never been anyone save Jesus Christ who's ever kept the law perfectly. Your works will not save you, but they are definitely enough to condemn you. The law is absolutely valid for every person in that it will condemn you before a just and holy God. But that doesn't get you back right with God. You need Jesus Christ for that. Someone who is perfect without sin of their own must be willing to take the sin penalty for you. And Romans tells us the wages of sin is death. That penalty must be paid by Jesus Christ. If you don't have faith in the Savior, there is no other way. For which you can be saved, by which you can be saved, okay? So if you want to see this real quickly, I'll show you a couple places in Scripture where this is kind of fleshed out, and then I'm going to have to move on and get back into Genesis 31 and 32. So turn with me to Romans chapter 9. Here it is, the chapter that every Baptist loves to hate. 
I saw that uh, Lifeway, which is a huge Southern Baptist company, put out a, they had a big deal a few years ago, four or five years ago now, where the, the thing of the year was, hey, we're going we're gonna to read through Romans, that's going to be the new um, the Bible study for that year. And so I thought, interesting. And so I delved into it, and you know what they'd done? They literally, this huge Bible study that was supposed to be done for like a three-month period or four-month period in Sunday school classes, skipped over chapter 9. What is that? <laughs> I mean, in my mind, that should be a little bit enlightening, right? It's kind of like uh, Jews today, where they will, uh, Jewish, many Jewish synagogues today outlaw Isaiah 53. Why? Because it so clearly points to Jesus Christ, and we ain't having that. We can do 52. Next week, we'll do 54. Anyway, Romans 9, the chapter, uh, traditional Baptists just love to hate, I guess. Let's start at verse 6. Here's what it says. But it's not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel actually belong to Israel. If you heard the gobbledygook that I did growing up, you might want to underline or highlight that verse. Seven, and not all are children of Abraham simply because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Verse eight, this means it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the offspring. Being an unbelieving Jew does you no good. Being a believer makes you a true Jew, so says Paul, a Jew. It is not the children of the flesh or the children of God. It's not the children of the flesh that God promises to watch over and protect. And it's not the children of the flesh that the promise of Genesis 12, 3 pertains to. None of the promises of God are for the children of the flesh. 2 Corinthians 1, 20. In case you're taking notes, 2 Corinthians 1.20 says all the promises of God find their yes and their amen in Christ Jesus. All the promises of God. That includes Genesis 12.3. All the promises of God find their yes and amen in Christ Jesus. Not in Abraham. Not in Isaac. Not in Jacob. Not in Moses. As great as those men of faith, patriarchs of the faith were, the yes and amen to the promises of God find themselves in Jesus Christ. Unless you are found in him, you are not a true Jew. You are not part of the true Israel of God. We'll pop over here to the book of Galatians. That's really kind of the theme of the entire book of Galatians, really. But turn with me to Galatians chapter 3. Start at verse 6 again. <clears throat> Here's what it says. Galatians 3, chapter, or chapter 3, verse 6. The whole book of Galatians basically is a fleshing of this out. Fleshing this out. I, I have had friends over the years who were literal Judaizers. And I, when I would go to Galatians, boy, they hated that book. That didn't pertain to us today. Oh, contraire. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then, here it is, verse 7, you might want to underline this one, know then it's only those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. 
Yeah, but I can trace my lineage all the way back. does not matter. If you don't have his faith, you are not what the scripture is talking about when it talks about the sons of Abraham. The scripture, this is verse 8, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So it's not the genetics of Abraham that gives you access to the promise of God. It's not. It's the faith of Abraham. Hopefully I've kicked on this dead horse and who are of faith are the true sons of Abraham. So don't get mad at me for telling you that. I'm just telling you what God's word says. These are not my words. Those are his words. If you don't have faith in the Messiah to come, Jesus Christ, if you don't have faith in, in him, you're not a true son of Abraham, even if you're descended from Abraham. So says God's holy word. Okay. Back to Genesis 31. God has revealed to Jacob that he's the reason Jacob is prosperous. I'm the one watching over you, Jacob. I've given you this promise. Jacob has struggled all his life because he wants that promise. Jacob is kind of like a really guy. I figure he's got to be an early Baptist. Because he's a great example of wanting the right stuff and going about it the wrong way. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> he wants the promise of God. He wants the blessing of God. And so he spends years scheming and deceiving and manipulating and trying to figure out how to get access to it. God has now seen that Jacob has been mistreated by Laban. And he tells Jacob to pack up and go back home. Which remember, who's waiting for him back home so far as he knows anyway? Esau. The older brother who was a man of hunting and a man of war and who has promised to kill him. That that could could be a serious situation here. But God has told him, I'm going to watch over you and I'm going to keep you safe. I want you to go back home. At this point, the oldest child wouldn't have been any more than 13 years old, not to mention the challenging logistics of having to move large herds of animals more than 300 miles that's going to be a massive undertaking but they do it because that's what god said to do they're going to move in faith despite the inconveniences they're moving in faith they pack everything up and leave but remember jacob's still pretty nervous about laban he knows he knows laban is pretty schemy he knows laban is may try to pull a fast one on him, and so he decides, let's just pack up literally in the middle of the night and leave. We ain't going to tell nobody. Let's just get out of here. And so they get out, and they take off, and they are booking it for a caravan this big. They are moving. Now, after three days, somebody rats them out. We're not told who. Somebody tells Laban, hey, uh, Jacob and all your help, they're gone. And he is not happy. So he... Goes home, he gets a party together, says, let's go after him, and he makes haste. He is in hot pursuit of them for seven days. He finally catches up to them in the mountains of Gilead. There's a, there's a real reason you need to learn this, because next chapter we're going to see him, we're going to see Jacob talking to his brother and saying, hey, we can't, we can't drive these people or these herds. If we just drove them hard for a day, they'd die. 
They've been driving them hard for 10 days. <clears throat> Jacob's caravan has tra- traveled roughly 300 miles in 10 days. If you don't think that's quite a feat, I double-dog dare you to try it. Okay, 10 days, go across Oklahoma on foot. Or I'll let you have a bicycle. My wife is not here, so I'm going to crack on her. She's at home with two sick ones. But uh, my wife and her family, they love bicycling and, you know, running. And uh, her and her dad have done triathlons and that good stuff. And so before we had kids, it was very common for us to, as soon as school was out, we'd go bicycle and camp out. We'd go across a state. I was like, this is a great idea. This is a great, you know, this is a a great tradition to get. So I got myself a bicycle, started riding. I was like, this is going to be great. The first day was the short day. It was only 30 miles. The only day I ever did on the bicycle. <laughs> Got back to camp. They're like, isn't this great? And I'm like, nope. Let me tell you what I'm going to do tomorrow. We'll pack everything up, throw it in the pickup. I'm going to drive to the next town. Where you all going to bicycle and have yourself a good time? 70 miles on a bike? I'll see you when you get there. I got a few good books. I'll be fine. <laughs> it's a long way. 30 miles every day for 10 days straight with small kids. They're hoofing it. They're scared. They're scared. So as Laban's about to catch up to Jacob, God warns him in a dream not to mistreat Jacob. Look at that. God, who promised to watch over Jacob, is, in fact, watching over Jacob. Even though Jacob doesn't know, God's watching over him. There might be some uh, similarities there to you, Christian. Laban accuses Jacob of all sorts of false things when they catch up to him. Jacob replies by finally voicing all of the evil that Laban has done to him. It finally all comes out. Laban has lied, cheated, manipulated, and deceived Jacob continually for the past 20 years. And Jacob has served him with as as much as he could, as upright a heart as he could. Yet it's clear there's not going to be any sorrow or repentance by Laban over any of his sin. Laban is a great example of the carnal man. We're going to see later. He will not repent of his sin, even though his sin has told him, confronted him with it. And he's not going to go into the promised land because of it. Don't tell me to change. Just tell me I'm blessed anyway. If you're out of Christ, you're not. He's not sorry for his manifold evil. So the two men make a covenant between them. And this is actually symbolic in a larger scheme. The covenant basically states Laban will never pursue them any further, which means he'll never go into the the promised land. And it also means uh, Jacob, for his part, is never coming back out. Laban's never entering into the covenantal agreement, the promised land, and Jacob is never coming out of it. What an interesting picture. And with that tension, we're now ready to delve into chapter 32 and see some wild and crazy stuff. So let's go to chapter 32. Let's just start there at verse 1. 32, 1. So Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. As soon as he was out of the company of this carnal man, the angels of God met him. He is obeying what God told him to do. And God is meeting him in that journey. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. 
And so he called the name of that place Mahanaim. What does that mean? Well, it's actually a Hebrew word that means double camp or two camps. There's Jacob's camp and then there's God's camp, he says. So he names it that. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them to say, Thus she shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. Remember, it's been 20 years. It's a long time. I have oxen and donkeys, flocks, male servants and female servants. I've sent to tell my Lord in order that I might find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned back to Jacob. So the messengers go, they talk to Esau, they come back to Jacob and they go, uh, verse 6, we came to your brother Esau and he's coming to meet you and there are 400 men with him. Your brother, who is a man of hunting and war, and has promised he would kill you the last time you saw him, is now coming to meet you with 400 men. Would you be a little bit concerned? For his part, Jacob is totally vulnerable. He has a whole bunch of, he's got wives and small children. Remember, the oldest son, the oldest that the oldest son could be even possibly is 13. He's probably not quite that old. It's not like they're going to be picking up the sword. And there's 400 men coming out to meet us. Now listen, you might wonder, why would Esau react this way? Jacob just sent him greetings to try to gain his favor, and now Esau is coming out like he's going to war. Yeah, but you've got to remember, Jacob's not the same man now that he was 20 years ago, which is also a gospel picture. Jacob is a man of faith, however imperfect However flawed, he is still a man of faith, and he is different than he was 20 years ago. But Esau doesn't know that. As far as Esau knows, Jacob is still a trickster. And Jacob has just sent him word, hey, I'm coming home. And what's Esau going to think? That trickster's coming home to claim his birthright. And who's been running the farm since he's been gone? Esau. How's it been doing? Obviously, it's been doing very well. Esau is incredibly wealthy. So I, I think in Esau's mind, I can't prove this, but I think in Esau's mind, he's thinking that trickster is coming back to try to steal or trick everything out of me, which is kind of ironic, really, because he only has it because he stole it from Jacob. It's kind of like, you know, don't come steal what I already stole fair and square. The things that God promised before they were born. And then, you know, Esau bargained it away for a bowl of stew. And then Jacob tricks dad. I mean, over and over and over we see this, right? But I think that's kind of what's going on. He's going to come out there and he's going to go, you know what? Let's just play this hand strong and make sure he's not going to try something. Because if he tries something, we're going to kill him. That's my guess. It's a guess. You've got to take it with a grain of salt. But I think it's an educated one. He's trying to be wary of Jacob because Jacob was a trickster. <clears throat> so, verse 7, then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. I think I can understand that. 400 men of war coming out to meet me. I'd be greatly afraid and distressed as well. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps. Okay, we're going to split this thing up. 
His thinking was, if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that's left will escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I'm not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you've shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I've become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me and the mothers with the children. But you said, I'll surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. I think there's some really interesting points in what's going on here. Number one is going to run a sword through your word of faith. Gobbledygook. You got any word of faith friends? I came out of the word of faith movement, so I've got a lot of word of faith friends. You're afraid? Don't, don't say that. Why, your words are going to create reality. No, your words aren't going to create reality. God's word creates reality. Jacob here, he shouldn't have been praying like that. He was admitting his fears. That'll make them come true. I've literally had people tell me that. Jacob is praying an honest prayer. I think that's what God wants. You know what Job did? Prayed an honest prayer. Jacob's praying an honest prayer. He's also doing something else that's very curious that I think we should take note of and copy. He's praying God's word. He's praying God's word back to him. God, you said this. I'm trusting you. And what he should have done, he's kind of like an immature Christian. And we all have times where we do this. He should have prayed God's word and then be still. Let God work. Stop panicking. Panic's not going to help. But he doesn't. Now listen, I know something about this. And when I woke up at one in the morning with my five-year-old son fighting to breathe, I was greatly afraid and distressed. And I did probably basically what Jacob did, right? I went into panic mode. I'm moving as fast as I can move, and I'm praying while I'm doing it. Nothing wrong with that, that part. I was praying some prayers of earnest desperation, I can promise you. But notice that Jacob isn't just praying God's word, but he's, he's also just continuing to panic. At some point, you have to stop, relax, and trust God to do what only God can do. In fact, what we're going to see is Jacob continues to panic so much that in an attempt to save his family, he is endangering their very lives. Watch. Verse 13. So he stayed there that night. And from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau. 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes, 20 rams. This is a big gift. Because remember, in his mind, this gift is for his life and for the lives of his wives and his children. 30 milking camels and their calves. That was a big deal. 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys, 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servant. Every drove by itself and said to them, pass on ahead of me and put a, stay, a space between drove and drove. Keep bringing presents 
Give a little space. Keep bringing presents. Give a little space. In his mind, hey, you know what? It's going to give him time to calm down. It's going to give him time to chill out. Esau will see all this stuff. He'll, he'll calm down. And he instructed the first. This is verse 17. When Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, to whom do you belong and where are you going? And whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, these belong to your servant Jacob. They're a present sent to my lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me. And afterward, I will see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. That breaks my heart, man. I've got to be honest with you. Breaks my heart because, yeah, you know, I've got a couple of brothers. And we've gotten in some pretty good fights when we were younger, you know. I would hope I would never be so tyrannical in my actions that my brother is thinking, you know, I just hope he's okay with me. I hope everything will just go smoothly. 21, so the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed the night in the camp. And here's where he gets lunatic. The same night... He arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, his 11 children, and he crossed the ford of the Yabak River. Or Jabak, some people call it. But This illustrates how scared and desperate he was. The Jabak River, or the Yabak River, is a fast-moving river that flows into the mighty Jordan. You don't want to cross this during the day with kids. It's going to be, this is by far the most hazardous part of this journey, just in natural, you know, geography. You know, crossing it in the daytime would have been hazardous enough. And he is so desperate and panicky that he's bordering on lunacy. He's crossing it at night. Have you thought about this? You're going to cross this at night with 11 small children? If one of them gets into the water, you're not finding them again. It's night. This is a fast-moving stream. They're gone. And he does that. He's panicking. That they were able to cross it without the loss of any life at all was a merciful act of God. 23 says, He took them and set them across the stream and everything else that he had. He forged this thing at night under cover of darkness. By far the most dangerous time to do it. And then 24 says this, Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. I love how it's just like, you know, nonchalant. A man? Who is this man? Well, we're going to find out in <coughs> later verses. This man is God himself. I was wanting to get a picture of Jacob wrestling with God so I could have it up here. The ones that I can find always have Jacob wrestling with this man with wings not who we wrestle with that just drives me nuts no it says a man wrestled with him who is he wrestling with let me shock you and then i'll tell you the calculus behind it that's the pre-incarnate christ there has never been a time in the history of the old testament where anybody has seen or wrestled with god the father never the Bible tells us that God the Father dwells in unapproachable light that no man can see and no man has seen. You will not see God the Father until you are in glory. 
He is spirit. He's without body. There's no one that's ever interacted with God on earth that's interacted with God the Father. They've interacted with Jesus either before or after his incarnation. 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 Flesh. Carne, flesh. Anyway. when, When Moses was talking to God in the burning bush on the top of the mountain... When Gideon was talking, anybody in the Old Testament that was talking to God was talking to the pre-incarnate Christ. So theologians call this a theophany or sometimes a Christophany. You're seeing Jesus Christ in the Old Testament before his incarnation. Okay? That's who he wrestles with. And obviously, this wrestling is kind of like when me and my kids wrestle. Right? Dad's here. Put your hands up. You ever wrestled with your kids? Yeah, man. Do you know how this goes, right? Your kids are giving you everything they've got, right? And the biggest thing for you is like, I'm just trying not to get, you know, not to hurt them. You're so much bigger and so much stronger than them. In their mind, it's a real test, right? It's a real battle. In your mind, you're like, I'm just trying not to hurt this kid, you know, right? I've had a few times before where I, you know, I shove them to the side a little harder than I meant to, and it's like, into the couch. Oh, hey, sorry, right? This is what's going on. It's not like, oh, this is a great wrestling match. Man, Jacob and and God, they're just really stroking it out. No. This is God throwing him down, throwing him down, throwing him down, and Jacob just keeps going at it. Do you think if he was in his right mind, he would have stopped to figure out, like, who is this dude? Or he would have just asked him, hey, are, are are you a friend? You a foe? He just sees a guy, doesn't really know the dude, and just jumps him. In case you're not aware, newsflash, not a good policy, okay? It's not. There's people out there that are much bigger, they're much stronger, they're much tougher, they're much more well-trained. Maybe they have 13 guns hidden on. You don't know what this guy's got, okay? Right? Judo, judo knows. You don't know what they got. He decides to wrestle with them, right? Not a good idea. He throws them around until the break of day, all night. Which says something about how panicked he is. He refuses to stop to even ask, who are you? What are you doing here? Where'd you learn all these sweet moves? You know? I would ask that. Look, man, after you whoop me, show me that throw again. The question, though, is why? Why does God wrestle with Jacob? Have you thought about that? Why? After this incredibly dangerous feat of fording the river in the dead of the night, why does God show up to throw Jacob around a little bit? This is the hour of Jacob's deepest need. You know, according to modern theology, this is the hour of Jacob's deepest need, so Jesus should come coddling him. Oh, Jacob, come here, buddy. Come over here, just lay your head on my shoulder, bud. Because our modern theology doesn't really know what love looks like. This is the hour of Jacob's deepest need. He is in an absolute panic of worry and desperation. And he's exhausted. And God shows up to wrestle with him. Why? Let's face it, this is getting ridiculous. It's getting out of hand. God has already promised to Jacob, I'm going to watch over you. I'm going to keep you safe. And Jacob is scurrying around and panicking as if God had never said that. 
Jacob has repeated it to God in prayer. He knows God said it. He remembers God said it. He reminds God that he said it. And then he starts scrambling as if God is not part of the equation. And Jesus shows up to throw him around and go, get yourself together. Stop panicking. Yeah, but he's coming with 400 men. That's not a challenge to God. 180,000 Assyrians, not a challenge for God. So God is showing up to show Jacob a little bit of tough love, actually. It's interesting how God is answering his need. Jacob needs God's protection, and so what God does is make Jacob weaker. That's not the way that we would have thought we want the answer to that prayer. God, this guy's coming after my life. He's coming to 400. I don't, I don't even know what to do. God says, don't worry, I've got this. Yeah, but I mean, he's coming and I don't know what to do. And Let me put your hip out of socket. You ain't going to wrestle with anybody all night ever again. You're going to learn to relax and let me do what I do. Think about his state of panic. His state of panic has gotten his mind and his logic twisted so much that in an attempt to keep his family safe, he forces them to do one of the riskiest things a person could do in that day and time. You don't keep your family safe by risking their, their lives needlessly. And that's, that's really where his panic has gotten him. His panic has gotten his mind twisted. God has to step in and say, Jacob, enough's enough. I'm God. I've got this. Trust me to do what only I can do and stop panicking. Stop worrying about all these things that are beyond your control. Yes, they are beyond your control, but they're not beyond my control. You might be panicked, but I'm not. Relax. I'm the one who's promised to watch over you. Now trust me to do that. Trust me to do what only I can do. So here's my question for you, Christian. Is that you? Are you the nervous and panicky one that needs to be reminded about God's promise of love toward you? You can get so panicked that you make everything worse. Stop. Take a breath. Relax. I hate to admit that that might have been me. You can't do anything about it. At some point, you get to the point where it's a situation that's beyond your control. And even with all of your panic, even with all of your worry, even with all of your activity, you can't do anything about it. At that point, give it over to the Lord. My mom tells me a story. When I was born, I was born very, very early. And um, didn't really have a lot of the stuff that we have today for kiddos that are born so early. And um, she said she was just praying, you know, God, keep this little boy from dying. And she said, I knew in my heart, God gave me a peace in my heart that he was going to make sure you lived. I knew in my heart. She said, I prayed and I prayed and I prayed. And then I knew you're going to be okay. And said, the doctors knew I'd been just worried for two or three days. And so they finally come into the room. And here I am sitting next to you. 
and I'm fine. And they ask how I'm doing, and I'm like, I'm fine, I'm fine. He's going to be okay. They sent the psyche valves to her. They thought, this, this woman's finally broken. She's lost her mind. And the psychiatrist or psychologist, whoever it was, came in to evaluate her and said, what's going on? What's going on, Mrs. Wilson? What's going on? She says, I, I know. I've prayed and I've prayed and I've prayed, and I have an assurance in my spirit. God is going to make sure this little boy lives. I can't, can't give her too much credit. Don't want her to get the big head. But at some point, that has to be us. I've done all I can do. I've prayed. I've given it to the Lord. And now I have to rest and watch him do what only he can do. He's the all-seeing God. Elroy, the God who sees. Stop panicking. Stop panicking. Isaiah 26.3 says, You will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you, because he trusts in you. 2 Timothy 1.7, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. If you're panicking out of fear, you will not have a sound mind. You'll make rash decisions. You'll make decisions out of desperation rather than decisions out of faith and scriptures and the logic. We have a song we actually sing with the kids when they get scared. What time I am afraid, I will trust in God, trust in God, trust in God. What time I am afraid, I will trust in God. Psalm 56, 3. I can still remember um, years ago we had a tornado that came pretty close to our house. And uh, I have the kids curled up next to me. And little Genesis must have been, I don't know, maybe three. And uh, we had, she had learned that song, though, by that time. And so we're all curled up, and I'm just trying to keep them from freaking out. And, Dad, let's sing that song. So we sang that song. Why? I can't go out there and yell at that storm and do anything. And you, Mr. Word of Faither, if you really think you can rebuke the tornado, be my guest. Have at it. But I know I can't do This is a situation that I can't do anything about. I do not control the winds and the waves. But you know what? I know who does. So what did we do? We prayed. We asked the Lord. We prayed his word. Lord, we're your people. You see us. You see where we're at. You see what's going on. Please watch over us and keep us safe. Surprise, surprise, he did. Christian, trust in God. Trust him to do what only he can do. 25, when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, which is really... More to say, Jacob didn't quit. He touched his hip socket. He didn't hit it. He didn't kick it. He didn't put a knee on it. There was no Muay Thai involved here. He touched it and put it out of joint. And then he said, let me go for the day is broken. And Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Jacob knows who this is. And remember, he goes on, let's... Get to the next one. So 26, let me go for the day is broken. Jacob says, I'll not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. It's interesting that he asked that because remember, in this culture, the name was seen as being bound up with the character traits of the individual. In fact, a lot of times a kid was not even given a name until they were two or three or four years old. Why? Because the parents wanted to see, hey, what's this kid going to be like? We're going to give him a name that fits that. 
So when someone asked for your name, that was tantamount to asking them, what's your defining characteristic? What characteristic about you defines who you are? And what has Jacob said every time someone has asked his name for all of those years? Jacob, the deceiver, the heel catcher, the schemer, the manipulator, that's his name. And God is saying, but you're not that. You were that, but you're not that anymore. You've served a man who has manipulated you, cheated you, schemed you with honor for 20 years. You're not that anymore. He says, what's your name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, your name will no longer be called Jacob. But now Israel, for you have striven or struggled with God and with men, and you've prevailed. The word Israel comes from a Hebrew word that means to struggle. It literally means to struggle with God. Israel, L is short for Elohim, God. Israel means to struggle with God. Sometimes it's, it's um, kind of colloquialized as meaning something to prince with God or something like that, but it literally means to struggle, struggle with God. You have struggled and struggled and struggled with God, and I'm telling you, stop struggling. I'm on your side, son. Stop wrestling with me. I'm fighting for you. Stop struggling. I have seen you. I'm here with you. In your hour of greatest need, I'm literally right beside you, and you're still struggling with me. Stop struggling. And so he makes sure that Israel can no longer struggle. And he touches his hip and puts it out of socket. He makes him weaker and says, I've already told you I'm with you. I've told you I'm protecting you. I've told you I'm watching over you. And you've shown signs. You remember that. You show signs that you believe it. But then you keep reverting back to your old ways and you want to try to fix everything. And I'm here to tell you, I'm on your side. I'm the one that's working. Let me work. And Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. (laughs) Yeah, like you don't know who this is, right? Why do you ask my name? Which is to say, don't pretend like you don't know me. Don't act like you don't know who I am. You know me and I know you. I'm not the one that needs a new name, Jacob. You are. So Jacob called the name of that place Peniel, saying, I have seen God face to face And yet my life has been spared. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that's on the hip socket because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. God's remedy for Jacob's panic was to make Jacob even more vulnerable. Why? Stop struggling with me. I'm on your side. I see what you're going through. I'm fighting the fight. Now, get out of the way and let me fight. Let me do what only I can do. Stop panicking. I'm here. I'm with you. And I'm on your side. Christian, let me close with this. God sees. He's on your side. If you are in Christ, you are the apple of his eye. Don't panic. He loves you. 
It's hard for us to think. I know as men we do this sometimes. We, when we see what we think of as trying circumstances, we throw ourselves into it. I've got to do this to protect my kids, to protect my wife, to provide for my wife and my kids. I've got to get this done. I have to fix everything. And at some point God goes, you can't. I was faced with that. I've got this little boy who's very scared because he can't breathe. And I'm doing everything I can to help him. And I'm having to realize at that point. I'm the one he looks to when he's scared. I tell them over and over when they get scared at night, they come to me and I tell them. They're like, I was, I'm scared there might be a monster. Son, there's only one monster that lives in this house, and that's me. And this little boy is looking to me for help, and there's nothing I can do except cry out to God. You know what I did? I cried out to God the most desperate prayers I've ever prayed. You know what God did? God did what only God can do. And I'm preaching this message hard because I'm still learning it. Let God do what only God can do. He sees you. Trust that. He knows you. He's known you before time began. He's the one fighting the fight. Trust him to do it. Let's pray. Lord, give us the grace to be calm and steady in our trust of you. Remind us today that you are the God who sees. You see it all. You know it all. And you've promised to watch over us and care for us. You've promised you would never leave us nor forsake us. Even when we're a panicky mess like Jacob. God, I ask you, please watch over all of our little ones, our sick ones. Raise them up for your glory and the expansion of your kingdom. But God, through all of this, through the trials and tribulations of life, let us look to you in calm and steady trust. And let a crazy watching world see there's something different about us. Because we trust in a God that we do not see. Let our lives be lived in a manner consistent with our Christian testimony. Let them be lived in a manner that honors you and you alone, solely Deo Gloria. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. And all God's people said, Amen.